Hey, you're listening to Rock Andor Roll, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm BJ, and as you may know, I wrote a book. It's called This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick, published by Jawbone Press, comes out on September the 6th. So depending on when you're hearing this, it comes out very soon or it might be out already. You know, I've often been asked over the years of doing the podcast, how can we support the show? Well, here you go. Buy my book. You can get the book anywhere that books are sold online. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, even Target and Walmart.com. I'm not sure how many copies are going to be out there in the wild in physical stores. Please, if you do see a copy out there in the wild, send me a picture. I would love to see it. Also, I have a blog called This Band Has No Past where I've been sharing a lot of interesting photographs, documents, old articles. And on that page, if you go to the blog page, actually, if you just go to thisbandhasnopast.com, it will take you to the blog. And there's a link there where you can order a signed copy of the book directly from me. I think that you don't even need to be a huge Cheap Trick fan to enjoy this book. I think it's pretty damn entertaining. A lot of interesting details and funny stories. I think any big fan of rock and roll will appreciate this kind of a universal tale of four guys who decided to devote themselves to this kind of a dream life of playing rock and roll for a living. And they were dedicated enough and talented enough that they pulled it off even though they were always a bit weird and abrasive and mildly subversive and there was always this underlying sense of humor or the absurdity of it all and in the end the real reason that Cheap Trick were successful and have had staying power and can tour to this day and are still releasing new music is because of the songs the songs are great and the songs are brilliantly performed. So as the subtitle of the book indicates, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick, the book is about everything that happened before those four guys came together as Cheap Trick and then the early years of Cheap Trick, from the club days up until when Cheap Trick at Budokan is about to be released in the United States. Telling that story required a ton of research, hundreds of sources, but also more than 80 interviews that I conducted with various people who were connected to the story in whatever way. So what I wanted to do with this episode of the podcast is play for you some selected clips from some of those interviews that I have conducted over the past five years or so. Keep in mind, when I was recording these interviews, it was not for the podcast. It was strictly so they could be transcribed for the book. So I apologize for the sound quality of some of these clips. Some of what you'll hear on this episode is actually quoted in the book, but you will get to hear the person actually say it. But a lot of what you'll hear was not used for the book. So I have the book right here. And if we look at the table of contents, I named each of the chapters after a short quote from a Cheap Trick lyric from this time period. So chapter one 
which tells the story of Rick Nielsen's father, Ralph Nielsen, and Rick's parents opening a music store in Rockford. I tell a, I give a brief history of Rockford, Illinois, and sort of Wisconsin and Illinois, and talk about the collision of the baby boom generation with the Beatles and the British invasion. The title of chapter one comes from a cheap trick song called Fan Club. Like in a and I have a clip that I can play for you here. Part of this actually appears in chapter one of the book. Here I am speaking with Dwayne Huey, who was actually a member of Robin Zander's very first band called The Destinations. But this is me asking Dwayne about Robin's father. Robin's dad was a musician, right? Oh, yeah. He played out at the uh, Rockford Airport in the lounge. Uh-huh. He played piano? He played keyboards. Keyboards, yep. yeah. And he used yes, to play, he, he played at the ice skating rink, too, right? I believe so. Yeah. I, I can't attest to that, but yes, I believe he did. And he played all by ear. Really? I remember that. That was just amazing to me that he could do it that well by ear. Oh, so he played at the lounge, but he didn't read music. He just played it by Not memory? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, right. I know that he had stated that he played by ear, and that's the way he learned. Um, <clears throat> now, he may have, at some other time, used sheet music or charts or something, but I don't know of him personally. I was just in awe that the man learned what he played as well as he did from memory. Right. Moving on to chapter two of the book. Chapter two is named for a quote from a cheap trick song called Hello Kitties. So you miss some school. And chapter two covers the early bands that the guys were in. Rick Nielsen's band, the Grim Reapers, Tom Peterson's band, the Bull Weevils, Bunny Carlos's band, the Pagans, and Robin's band, the Destinations. And what I have for you right here is a clip of Jim Zubiena, who was the drummer in an early version of the Grim Reapers with Rick Nielsen. Ken Biggis, I, I used to do a terrible thing to him. And it's probably why he quit the band. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, God, what I, I, it was terrible. What was that? We Now, the band was just, and I remember doing this. We were in that basement. You, did you see the pictures I sent you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the picture, the picture in the in the dungeon down there, where Joe and Gary's there. Well, this is before Joe was in the band. The band was Willie, uh, myself, Ken Vegas, Rick Nielsen, and Gary Shooter. That was the band, uh, and it was kind of a, a charming time. We would be playing a song, and in between songs, I would reach forward with my drumstick and turn off Kenny Vegas's amplifier. <laughs> And we'd do two or three songs before he would know it. <laughs> and it would really piss him off. But the truth of the matter was, he didn't add anything to the group. <laughs> and I used to shut his amp off, and I did it. And then finally, he, he just quit the band. And I don't, know if he I don't know if he quit the band because I was turning off his amp, or if he quit the band because he realized we were moving on, and he wasn't able to follow. This next clip is Robert Langenberg, who was actually a member of Rick Nielsen's very first band, The Phaetons. But this is Robert talking about the band he was in with Tom Peterson called The Bull Weevils. Tom's mom 
because we used to put we play in my backyard, you know. Uh huh. And we we do like a party in the backyard and set everything up and play. And we were doing. Um, Tom's mom made these green fuzzy vests for us to go with the old evil theme. Right. <laughs> up next is a short clip of Craig Myers who was in the Bull Weevils with Tom Peterson, along with Craig's brother, Mike, who he's talking about here. He would drum, and I would play a nylon string guitar, and then he would sing backup harmony to me, and we'd, we'd, we'd go down to the basement and try to, try to do Beatles songs, you know, the two of us just love, loving music, you know. Moving on to Chapter 3, which is named for a quote from the Cheap Trick song, He's a Whore. This chapter tells the story of the Bull Weevils turning into a band called Toast and Jam and a new version of the Grim Reapers, which included vocalist Joe Sundberg, who had been the singer for the Bull Weevils. He had replaced Robert Langenberg in the Bull Weevils. We get an introduction in this chapter, I believe, to Ken Adamani, booking agent and promoter who would become Cheap Trick's manager. At the beginning of the chapter, we hear the story of the Grim Reapers waiting at the factory in Madison, which was owned by Ken Adamani, where they were supposed to open for Otis Redding and the Barcase, but that was the night that Otis Redding's plane crashed into nearby Lake Monona. This is Grim Reapers drummer Jim Zubiana talking about that night. We didn't know what was going on. We're like, why haven't we started this? Why haven't we done this? Where's Otis? Blah, 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 blah. And then they call us into, Kenny, Ken Adamani called us into the office. Told us this plane crashed, and we were like, oh, my God. It was devastating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the fear of what's going to happen, because remember, this is a time when when riots were happening for just a drop of a pin or something like that. So I was actually concerned that there was going to be violence as a result of this when, when the when the thousand people who were lined up on the sidewalk outside freezing their ass off heard somebody out with a loudspeaker out of a second floor or third floor window telling what happened. And what actually happened when that was verbalized was an en masse sigh and then people cry. Right. Nothing else, just that. The Grim Reapers were on the bill with Otis Redding the night he got killed. Yeah. And that's kind of bizarre. Yeah, the name that's of the band. That's kind of weird. Yeah. Exactly, right. So we ended up playing the gig without him. So that was it. You know, we played that gig. We were all very, very disappointed and sad about what happened. I still get sad thinking about it. Yeah, it's terrible. That yeah. moment, we were looking forward to to listening to live, opening for, and what, at that point in time, was the most powerful, emotional singer in the world. Let's hear what singer Joe Sunberg remembers about that night. The club was owned by our manager, Ken Adamay. So we were, you know, scheduled to play with Otis. And Otis was like my, you know, I just loved the guy. and loved his music and everything. So he was like my hero. And so this was something I was really looking forward to. And we ended up that night, you know, certainly after all this stuff went down. Um, it was, I mean, it was kind of a hazy thing because it wasn't an announced. Uh, a lot of information wasn't available because it, 
uh, his plane went down in the afternoon, I think, and you know, we were going to play that evening. So there was a lot of people outside waiting to get in the factory, and you know, we set up, and we ended up uh, playing for the people. Like I said, Chapter 3 also tells the story of a new band that Tom Peterson and Craig Myers formed after the Bull Weevils called Toast and Jam. So I'm guessing Joe left to join the Grim Reapers, and that's when you became Toast and Jam. Is that how it worked? Or? Yeah, he, he, well, he left to join them. Yeah, and, and so Tom and I were close. My brother was uh, graduating high, had graduated high school now, and, you know, Vietnam's raging now. We're talking like 66, 67, so he had to join rather than be drafted. So he was gone. He was or about to go soon. But Tom and I stuck together, and we formed a... I started to... Uh, I got a copy of uh, John Mills' Blues Breakers. I don't think anybody else had that. Uh, John Mills' Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. It's classic. Uh, right. The Beano album, they call mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I had a copy of that. I don't think anybody else, even in the around here, I don't know, maybe Chicago, but I know no one around here did because nobody played guitar like that at all. The guitar around here was pretty simple, and it was all that poppy, beatly, you know, Dave Clark Five-ish type stuff. It was all, it was just, nobody was playing fluid leads like that. And we, none of the kids, uh, you know, in my school and in, in my pocket, uh, you know, knew anything about blues or anything. So, but I got a copy of that record, and it was English, so I was interested in it. Anything English I was interested in at the time, and uh, all my influence went to England. I wasn't crazy about what was happening, like uh, Starship or Jefferson Airplane stuff like that. It wasn't working for me. The American music, as well as the British stuff, was with you know with Clapton and Jeff Beck with the Yardbirds. That kind of stuff was really the big influence on me as a guitarist. So. Uh, and Tom was right there too. He liked that same kind of music too. So he, he became my bass player. He would be rhythm guitar, but he became a bass player. And we formed a band called Toast and Jam, which was doing blues. And uh, that's where I kind of got the jump on everybody else in this area. Eventually led to Fuse, but that's how I got the jump on everybody playing what became the standard rock and roll style of playing, which is all blues stolen. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was able to do that in '67. So I learned how to do it, and, you know, quivering, you know, with the, the vibrato and the strings and stuff like that. Nobody did that around here. I learned to do it. And, uh, you know, kind of like Tom and I were really sailing along, but we had a band called Toast and Jam. Was Ron Holm was the singer, played harmonica and acoustic guitar, too. Curtis Wright from uh, Beloit, Wisconsin, played keyboards. Let's see. Uh, Ron Holm is that? So is that like H O L M E? Or I think it's H O L M. Okay. So Craig just talked about Ron Holm, who was the singer for Toast and Jam. Let's hear from Ron. Do you remember any of the specific songs that were in your sets? Yeah, I remember one in particular that was kind of our signature piece. It was our arrangement of Backdoor Man. Among other people, The Doors recorded that song. We had a totally different take on it, and it was more up-tempo. The, the typical arrangement of it is kind of sleazy and a little bit slow, and ours, we, we just moved it up a little bit. And the thing was that Curtis Wright was 
among other things, and he, he was large. He was a big guy, but he was he was a very adroit dancer. And in the middle of Backdoor Man, Chip would play a drum solo, and Curtis would not just jump off the stage, he would do a complete 360 somersault off the stage and then go into a St. Vitus dance. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a, quite a hoot. Now, one very important development that came along with the formation of the band Toast and Jam, this is the moment when Tom Peterson switched from guitar to bass. Well, the, I want to, before I forget, I want to ask you, uh, so the Tom Peterson switching from guitar to bass, how yeah, exactly how, how exactly did that happen? Was it just out of necessity or? Yeah, well, it was kind of out of necessity and it was a way to, he was, we needed a good bass player because the music we were attempting, like Yardbird stuff, had real good bass playing. So we needed a good bass player and he, he was willing to do it out of necessity but also very willing he was he just got very good at it very fast it was like me on guitar you know i learned how to play tune the right way and got good fast and he was the same way and we'd spend all our time together so after school we'd be in like if we were at my house or his house most of the time in the bedroom and there were a couple guitars there he'd be he'd be playing bass parts and i'd be playing guitar parts and you know it just came from knowing how to play and predict each other which really was the key to fuse was the fellows that I met in Toast and Jam, for me it was the key to Fuse because Chip, Tom, and myself could pick a key and jam for hours and not sound like it wasn't rehearsed. Mm-hmm. We could nod for changes and stuff, and we just had to, we, we, came, we could predict what each other was going to do, and it, it became sort of like a uh, an unnatural chemistry that, that people just don't get very often. It was special. And you and Tom, you went, you saw the society. Did you see the society together? And then you stole Chip from the band. Is that yes, yes, okay. pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think the one, the one of the guitarists wanted to pound me or something. <laughs> they were mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he said he was going to break my fingers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's when Tom switched from guitar to bass. Was at that point, which is pretty interesting. And, um, it is, particularly since he became, maybe that's why he's such an innovative bass player with his 8-string bass and his 12-string bass. Yeah, right, because he started on guitar, yeah. Yeah, and one thing I remember about him, even back when we played, he was uh, he was so innovative. And uh, I remember there was a song that the Yardbirds did, and it had a really fast bass lick and I didn't know how anybody would play that lick they did but but uh, he just whipped it right out just played it right away but he played it with a flat pick Uh which would be and to do that with the fingers the way a typical bass player would play it would would be kind of a be quite a challenge but he flat picked it it, it, I'll I'll hum you the riff. It went over and over like that, and those those kinds of quick notes are are really hard with the fingers. But he just went up and down, double picking with the flat pick, sounded fine. 
And he was that way. He struck me uh, from the beginning of when we were playing as uh, quite a talented uh, fella. Right, yeah. Yeah, Craig described how that him and Tom and Chip, he said they could just jam for hours and just not sound like it was rehearsed. That's the way he described it. Yeah, uh, all three of them were that way, and I'm glad you mentioned Chip, because I, I was, uh, I mean, I kind of felt like I fell into a group with, uh, with these super talented people, all with their own their own style, their own sensibility. And Chip with his double bass drums and Craig had a great stage presence. He'd keep his, he'd sling his guitar low, extend the strap, and he had an interesting stage presence that way. And then he, he really had a great feel for those blues licks. Yeah. That were, we were learning at the time. It was, it was something. Toast and Jam really doesn't last very long because what happens is Rick Nielsen and Joe Sundberg from the Grim Reapers decide that they want to pursue writing original music. And they Rick Nielsen has seen Toast and Jam and realizes that the musicians in Toast and Jam, Craig Myers on guitar, Tom Peterson on bass, and Chip Greenman on drums, are great. And he wants them for his band. But anyways, we were doing uh, uh, bluesy style music, which none of the other bands were still were still pretty much just doing top forty stuff. So we kind of like, kind of like established that style of music, and people people around here had never really heard it. So it was catching on kind of slow, but it was catching on. And there were people that were starting to pay attention to the way I played guitar, which helped me a lot. You know, spurred me on. So that's that. Right about then, uh, that's kind of what led to. Uh, Fuse because uh, Nielsen and my brother came up to the Dalton Youth Center in, uh, I think it was in Rockton. He was either in Rockton or Beloit, the Dalton Youth Center. Tulsa Jam was playing there. And they came up and heard the band, and Rick was kind of floored, and he, want, he, he talked to me after that about uh, forming a new band with him and Joe and Tom and myself. And I had a drummer, Chip Greenman, was the drummer for Tulsa Jam. And, uh, I kind of discovered him at a at the Rumpus Room, which was a local place too. Mm-hmm, right. And uh, I heard him playing with a band called The Society. Okay. <laughs> and Tom and I were floored at how much talent he had. Drummers back then just kind of went, you know, they just did do do. That's about all they could do, you know. And uh, Chip was Buddy Rich inspired, so he had all this technique, which you know we hadn't seen technique at all. <laughs> so he he floored us, and we we were doing stuff like uh, Tulsa Jam was doing stuff like Hendrix. Uh, we'd have the singer and the keyboard player would take a break. Tom would sing it. We'd do it three piece, you know, guitar, bass, drums. But we were doing it convincingly. So uh, that kind of led to Fuse. Rick was kind of floored by the band he heard, and uh, he decided to 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 join up with us. So. Realistically, you had the bass, drums, and guitar from from Toast and Jam is what was Fuse. Right. Rick played keyboard and Joe sang. Now, if Rick Nielsen was going to form this new band with the guys from Toast and Jam, that meant that he was going to have to break up the original version of the Grim Reapers. We were rehearsing in the basement of Ross's dad's doctor's clinic. 
And I walked in for rehearsal, and everybody was being weird. And I said, what's going on? And they said, we're breaking up the band. That was it. We're breaking up the band. And that was was because Rick and Joe were going with those other guys? I I don't know. You'd have to ask them why the band broke up. Um, I don't actually know the reason. Um, There was no tumultuous event that caused the breakup. I just walked into rehearsal unbeknownst to me what was going on. So it had to have been something that had been in plan that, that was kept from me personally. And from Ross, too, I would assume. And we showed up, and they said, we're breaking up the band. Okie dokie, bye. Packed I, up my drums and took everything home. Well, must have been pretty disappointing, or were you ready for it to be over? I was surprised. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had another life besides that, because the I, I, basically that's what I did. I became an actor. That's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be an actor. I never looked at what we were doing like Rick Nielsen did. Rick Nielsen looked at it like it was going to be his profession. Right. He had every intention of making this what he was going to do the rest of his life. I had no intention of doing that, none whatsoever. Right. Now, Rick Nielsen is bringing along his singer from the Grim Reapers, Joe Sundberg, to this new band. So what does that mean for Ron Holm, who's the singer of Toast and Jam? When the opportunity for Toast and Jam and the Grim Reapers to peel off some members and fuse, <laughs> uh, fuse in- <laughs> that's a good that's a good pun. <laughs> I like, I might use that. <laughs> fuse into a new band came up. The notion that I that we discussed. I don't know what all they talked about with with uh, the Reapers, but the the notion we talked about with Toast and Jam was that we would do something kind of unusual. We'd have two singers, and and I would uh, Joe and I would try to work out duets and harmonies. And I was also a still am a uh, a harmonica player, so we could you know have me play harp and and do that grungy blues stuff uh, in addition to what whatever else. So the first rehearsal happened, and I sensed that this this was going to be a lot of work. <laughs> and, and I was up to my ears. I majored in math, and math came easy to me, relatively speaking. Uh, it was the only thing I had a sort of a, a knack for academically, but, it, you know, it still takes a lot of work, and then commuting to DeKalb and stuff. So I wasn't really sure how this duet thing was going to work out and how much work it was going to be or if the band, as it was developing, was even going to really want to move in that direction. So to be blunt, uh, I just didn't go to the next rehearsal. <laughs> right. I think that that probably was just fine with them because obviously they went on and did fine. But here's what I'm getting at. I had a draft deferment. Right. And if I tried to do music full time, I entered into a whole different world of draft letters, draft physicals, and then maybe going to the service. So... Looking back, 
you know, you know, I, I'm I'm happy with more than happy with my choice, but it was so looming. It would have been nice to have been able to do rock and roll full time at the time, but because of Vietnam, who knows how that would have turned out. Moving on to chapter four. Chapter four is named after a quote from the lyrics of the Cheap Trick song, Oh Boy. So that band, Toast and Jam, merging with the Grim Reapers, Rick Nielsen and Joe Sundberg from the Grim Reapers, that band ends up landing a record deal with Epic Records and changing their name to Fuse. Let's hear what singer Joe Sundberg remembers about the Fuse experience. They didn't like the name, so when they signed us, they wanted us to change the name, and their creative department came up with it. As I look back on it today, the whole thing was an odd thing. It was a First of all, we were all too young to know better. And secondly, you know, to trust the, you know, the guys at Epic who turned out to be, you know, idiots. You know, they gave us a, a producer who was horrible and, you know, he'd never produced any kind of rock, heavy rock band like we were. And so the sound on the record came out really tinny and hollow and, he didn't know what he was doing, and the guys at Epic were really kind of dorky, and so some of the stuff that came up was really shitty, you know, but it, it, a lot of bands, things like that happen. Chapter 4 is about that, and Chapter 4, I also talk about Gary Shooter. I haven't mentioned Gary yet. Gary was a member of Rick Nielsen's very first band, The Phaetons, and he was the original singer for the Grim Reapers Gary ended up being sent into ground combat in Vietnam, and I did my best to tell the story of what happened to Gary. One quote I can play for you that part of this actually appears in Chapter 4. This is Paul Hamer, who later formed Hamer Guitars, talking about Fuse. And I'm, I'll never forget the way they walked into the show that night, because we, we had to get there early to set up all of our stuff, and... When they walked in, it was like uh, they looked like they were from England. They they looked like the Beatles. They all dressed in, you know, in very unusual clothes. The, their girlfriends were the prettiest. Uh, they showed up in a real car, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then they played great. Moving on to Chapter Five. Chapter Five is named for a quote from the lyrics of the Cheap Trick song, "Hot Love." So a lot of Chapter 5 is about the summer of 1970 when all of these promoters across the country were trying to mount these rock festivals to cash in on the success or inspired by the success of Woodstock, even though this was after the disaster of Altamont. And Fuse played or tried to play at several of those rock festivals. And it's a very entertaining story of how these promoters tried to put on these festivals across the country and the local people where they tried to mount these festivals, the locals in those areas were very much against having this festival come to their neck of the woods. And chapter five also talks about a band called friends, which featured Robin Zander and bunny Carlos. And I talked to Rick Pemberton, who was also in that band. And Rick told me about another band of sorts 
that he participated in with Bunny Carlos, and Robin Zander was also involved, and that was called Buns Carlton's Air Farce. Yeah, Air, Air Farce was, was, was uh, well, Bun, Bunny would sit with a tape recorder, and then I'd, I'd come over and, and try and, he'd play, play guitar, and then, then I'd try and play some lead guitar on top of it, and we'd play some blues stuff, Robert Johnson stuff, or, or some Rolling Stones stuff, and, uh, then from there that evolved to like okay let's get maybe a couple other people let's get someone who's a good singer so we would often get we'd either get uh obviously robin or zeno right or even joe sunberg from uh from fuse Mm -hmm. how many chords regular ending just like the record one chord in there one chord, really? three A, G, uh, three G, oh, that's great. That's that's your regular one. What's that? Oh, that's mine. I'll move it. Fun. Fun. Oh. Yours. Ready. Come on, you got yours, right? No. to chapter six which is named for a quote from an early cheap trick song called you talk too much chapter six covers a new version of fuse which rick nielsen puts together with the singer and drummer from todd rundgren's band naz stuki and tom mooney and another band that is talked about in chapter six is a band called tunes that included Robin Zander, along with Craig Myers, who was the guitar player in The Bull Weevils, Toast and Jam, The Grim Reapers, and Fuse. And another member of Tunes was Rick Pemberton. We had another band. It was called Tunes, and that was Robin and, and Craig Myers and Chip Greenman and Mark Dahlgren. That sound right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did that band come together? Do you remember? I forget if it was Craig. Craig and I hung out a little bit at the time, you know. And Bunny was still kind of at this time too, 1970, 71, 72. Bunny was doing these things with like Nielsen and Craig Myers and and either Stuky or whatever. And they they just get together and play 
play somewhere, play at a high school or something, or a dance or something like that. Right. So there's a, a lot of uh, intermingling, you know, a lot of, uh, oh, just get together and do this, you know. And, you know, that I was involved in some of it, and then I, I wasn't involved in, you know, all of it either. But So they were doing that. Let's see, I don't know, maybe Craig and I and Chip Greenman maybe started jamming. I was playing bass, Craig was playing guitar. Chip was drumming. Yeah, I think maybe somehow Mark Dahlgren came in next, and then we needed a singer, so I said, well, I know Robin. And, you know, they didn't know Robin, so... Okay, so you, so brought, we, you brought Robin to... So to I brought Tennessee. Robin okay. into that. So we rehearsed a lot and played about two or three times. That particular... That's the five of us there. And then whatever either someone left or people lost interest or something like that moving on to chapter seven which is named for a quote from the cheap trick song mandicello chapter seven covers the time period when rick nielsen and eventually tom peterson and bunny carlos moved out to philadelphia formed a band called sick man of europe with stuki from naz on vocals and they were all working at a club called artemis and one person they met when they were out in Philadelphia was a drummer named Hank Ransom. Rick, Stuckey, myself, and my brother, my twin brother, bass player, John, mm-hmm. went into the studio and laid down, you know, some studio tracks for Columbia. You have that? Wow, so are, the, are those, I have some recordings of three songs, I think. Um, I'm a surprise. I'm a surprise. Bean, and um, is the other one ain't got you? Ain't got you. Yeah, right. that was a Stooky, right? Yep. And Cotton Kent playing piano too, right? Cotton Kent, my keyboard player, right? Correct. Yeah. So you're playing drums. Um, you're playing drums on those Sick Man of Europe recordings. Okay. Wow. And it was like an audition for for Columbia Records, something like that. No, we recorded the stuff in Philly, those four demos, shipped them to all the you know, A&R guys in New York, and Columbia Epic caught notice of it. Then we went to New York, and we went into Columbia Studios and uh, recorded the, uh, the, the, the four demos.
All right, we've made it to chapter eight, which is actually named for a quote from the lyric of the song that the song we just heard turned into. So that was I'm a Surprise by Sick Man of Europe. That was the demo recording that we heard Hank Ransom talking about that he played on. That song was eventually turned into the Cheap Trick song, So Good to See You, from which chapter eight got its title. So the eventual lineup of Sick Man of Europe was Rick Nielsen, Tom Peterson, Bunny Carlos, and singer Stuckey. The reason that Hank Ransom, who we just heard from, played drums and his brother John played bass on those early Sick Man of Europe recordings is because Tom Peterson and Bunny Carlos had not yet moved to Philadelphia. At first, it was just Rick and Stuckey who moved to Philadelphia. And at the time that Rick first moved to Philadelphia, Tom Peterson was over in Germany living with Craig Meyer's brother, Mike Myers. I went to Vietnam, I came back, they sent me to Germany, and Tom Peterson showed up at my apartment out of the blue. I, I used to write, you know, we used to write, I used to write to Rick and Tom, and keep in touch, kind of, you know. Yeah. But uh, well, Tom showed up one day, and he stayed there for about, I don't know, six months or so. You know, I was, at that point, I had kind of gotten run out of my apartment by the German police. So I was living with a friend in the army, and you know, and his wife. And then Tom showed up, and they well, they liked Tom, so okay. So Tom and I had the, one bedroom, and we made a bunk bed. We we made a door, took a door, and put it on legs, and had a bunk bed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so they liked Tom. So okay, but then Rick, Karen, the, their dog, Stuky, somebody else. I can't. Uh, I can't remember. They show up and they got no place to stay, so they want to stay with my friends and his wife, you know. And there you go, he got Tom and me in this little apartment, and they were sleeping. So they slept in the attic, like a crawl space up above, uh, for a while. So because they got fed up with that, and I don't know where they went after that. But Tom stayed on for a while. I finally got out of the army. Uh, I got a job. Tom and I got a job in a a military frozen food. Uh, warehouse with we work with German prisoners uh, in the in the cold, cold freezer warehouse. And Tom Tom was the, the consummate Weisenheimer. Right. Uh, he's always a jokester. I remember one time we were in the, this frozen food thing, and I was climbed. I climbed up on some top of boxes and pallets. You know, I was probably 15 feet in the air in the warehouse, just me and him. And he turns the lights out and leaves. <laughs> I'm like 15 feet high, total blackness in a freezer. You know, that's the kind of stuff Tom would do. It, I really, really good time. He liked hanging around with me and my army buddies. So at the beginning of Chapter 8, the guys have moved back from Philadelphia to Rockford. And one amazing thing that happened to me over the course of this journey of writing this book is I had this three-and-a-half-hour meeting with former Cheap Trick manager Ken Adamani and Cheap Trick drummer Bunny Carlos. And here we have a clip from that meeting where Ken is talking about right after they moved back from Philadelphia, they fired Stuckey, and now they needed a new singer. And this is Ken talking about ideas that Rick Nielsen had for who might be the new singer of the band. And you'll also hear Bunny Carlos in this clip. We're talking about Rick coming back from Philadelphia. Here's a note. I'm back from Philadelphia. Next day. He wants me to find 
the singer of the Lemon Pipers and also the singer for One-Eyed Jacks. So he was looking, you guys were looking for a vocalist. The Lemon Piper guy, he was looking for that guy before Stookie. Yeah, because he was looking for that guy back in the late 60s after Green Tambourine. Because he told everybody in town about it, I remember. Yeah, yeah. interesting. And in Chapter 8, we finally get to the formation of the original version of Cheap Trick, which was Rick Nielsen and Buddy Carlos, along with a bass player named Rick Zaluga and a singer named Randy Hogan, who Rick Nielsen renamed Zeno. Basically, what we did was uh, I got a call from Bun, and I came over and started rehearsing with the man. We rehearsed in Rick's parents' garage, and we just took it. They took out records, and we listened to records, and stuff that they knew, all the British stuff, of course, you know, Tom and Rick had lived in London, and uh, we listened to, you know, Jackie Lomax and, and The Move and some of these things, and uh, basically picked songs that had been hits in England, and that basically was our, our set list for the most, most part. You might have noticed that Zeno mentioned something about Rick and Tom living in London. Well, they actually, they went to London for a week or two in 1968, at the end of 1968. And it was Rick, Tom, and Mike Myers, Craig Myers' brother, who had been a member of the Bull Weevils and actually worked with Rick at Ralph Nielsen's music. Now in 1968, I was working at the store, Rick was working, Rick would work there on and off. And Rick was going to England. So I went with him and Tom Peterson, we all three went to England, 1968, Christmas right before Christmas, and we went to London for two weeks. Uh, it was great. It was like uh, the flight and the hotel, were, I think it was like a couple hundred bucks for the flight and the hotel for two weeks. I, I sold my car. I was going uh, at 16. In January 1st, I was uh, to report to the Army, 69. So it was my last fling. We went to London. I uh, had a great time. I uh, uh, went to the Roundhouse, uh, the Marquee Club, all these, went to concerts. Uh, we had theater tickets, too, that came with a flight, brought some drugs with us, turned on the English like they've never been turned on. <laughs> <laughs> what kind uh, of, like, like acid, you mean? Or? <laughs> acid, yeah. yeah. So once Rick Nielsen had the band together, he invited Ken Adamani over to see the band rehearse. Let's hear what Ken remembers about that. Uh, I remember Rick called and said we finally got the band together and come down to a rehearsal. It was at Spring Creek Road. 5105, yeah, at his garage. 4101 Spring Creek? Yeah, 5101 or 41, yeah, something yeah. like that, yeah. And it was you, Saluga, Zeno, who I'd never heard sing before, and Rick. And they played a bunch of songs, and I said, I like it. I really liked it a lot, and we started booking. Yeah. But they were so different very difficult to get them in places. Fortunately, I had an agency with some bands that were really popular. Dr. Bob and the Headliners. 50s band, popular Z- all over the Zoo country. Too, yeah. We opened gigs for Dr. Bob, end of the fall, I remember that year. I know we did some rock and roll festivals where we, it was like, Ken was like, get out all your rock songs, get rid of all that other stuff or they're gonna kill you. You know, we did, you know, we just, Louis Louis or whatever to think money, you know, and that kind of stuff. And uh, we get up there, and yeah, you know, Dr. Bob opened a, a, more than a few doors for us. Huh? We did a benefit here, I remember one night in the winter. We were still working with him in that winter because it snowed one night. 
here in Madison, we did some benefit with them. So in that clip, we heard Ken and Bunny both talk about a band called Dr. Bob and the Headliners, a band that Ken Adamani managed early on, and a band that Cheap Trick opened for several times at the very beginning of Cheap Trick. I also spoke with Al Craven, who was the singer for Dr. Bob. Uh, Ken and Bunny both said that Dr. Bob opened a lot of doors for Cheap Trick. That's pretty straightforward. I'm glad that he's. I'm glad that that's he was open about that. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Doctor Bob was the hammer of the agency. As they, 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 I don't know if you know what that term means, but Doctor Bob was the hammer for for Ken, so that he opened the door for any of his other groups. Yeah. But the thing about it is, I, I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want to sound boastful. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Now, Rick Pemberton was actually at the very first Cheap Trick show. Actually, it was before they were even called Cheap Trick. At the first show, they went by just Reapers. No the, no grim. I actually have an ad for that show. It just says Reapers. But that was the first show of the band that was Rick Nielsen, Bunny Carlos, with Zeno and Rick Jaluga. It was in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in June of 1973, and Rick Pemberton was there. Were you at the first Cheap Trick show? Or? Yeah. Yeah, really? Yeah, I, I I can say I was at the very first cheap trip performance, and I helped them carry their equipment upstairs. At the top deck, including a a piano and a mellotron. <laughs> <laughs> Would Zeno play even though, those? He, he, Rick, Rick played a little. Okay. I mean, the the early cheap trick a little bit, little mishmash of this and that, and then and they figured it out pretty quickly. It was what soon turned into, you know, what, what you would know as Cheap Trick. So that version of Cheap Trick formed in June of 1973, and by November of 1973, Tom Peterson had replaced Rick Jaluga and become the bass player for Cheap Trick. And an early gig they did with Tom Peterson was called the Rock and Roll Revival. It was that same month, November, and Cheap Trick were actually the backing band for Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Freddie Cannon, and Del Shannon. Then we met Bo before the show. I have a tape of us meeting Bo. I turn my tape recorder on. He's like, he goes to Ricky. I got a big tree I'm going to chop down and make a guitar of this all. And Rick goes, Bo, this is Bun. I go, I'm the drummer. I says, Tom Tom's on Bo Diddley beat. Don't play none of that Tom Tom shit. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> Just play your own funky beat. Moving on to Chapter 9. Chapter 9 is named for the lyric from an early Cheap Trick song called Number One that eventually became the song Love's Got a Hold on Me on the one-on-one album. And chapter nine is the chapter when Zeno ends up leaving the band. And it was a poor surprise to the people in the straight-up band, and they were looking for, you know, they were looking for a singer. And I was at a place in my life where I wanted to get away from the people I was working with. I wanted to get the hell out of the town I was in. I'd never been anywhere with anything. I loved Twin Cities. You know, they called me and they bugged me about it, and eventually I just made a decision, you know what, I'm leaving. So your last gig, I have it, was October 12th at East High School in Madison. I recall that, yes. I stayed in Madison that night, hopped on a plane, a prop plane, flew me to Iowa. From there, I, I made a stop over and flew right to Minneapolis. And the guys would straight up pick me up and take me out to Minnetonka, where I stayed right away. Yeah, um... That I was, was still actually... wearing my stage clothes. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> when you were on the plane? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> 
Moving on to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is named for a lyric from the Cheap Trick song, Look Out. Chapter 10 is when we finally see Robin Zander join the band, and now we finally have the classic lineup of Cheap Trick, the lineup that will go on to become my favorite band of all time. Interestingly enough, even after Robin Zander joined the band, Rick Nielsen still tried to recruit another singer named George Faber. So yeah, they asked me to be to join the band. Uh, but, so the Finchley Boys and uh, Fuse played several dates together. And uh, Rick, I think, was... He liked my showmanship so much, and uh, I think he, he just kind of heard my voice and my showmanship fitting into the group. And the Finchley boys had broken up, and he knew about that, so he asked me to join the band, and I turned him down once. And then they've got Robin in the band, they still asked me to join the band. And I'm thinking, and I'd heard Robin by this point, and I, I thought he was a perfect fit for him. And he said, no, Robin's too conservative. You know, we're going to keep him in the band, but we'd have him play guitar, acoustic guitar, and sing backgrounds. And we want you up front. And I never saw it really being a fit. And I, I guess the thing was for me is that I just had broken away from the Finchley Boys, which was a very guitar-dominant band, and wanted to kind of do something a little bit more rhythm and blues style where the, and beat the leader of, the, of a band, which I'd already put the band together. And... I could sense that Cheap Trick was going to take off, but I thought that my style and, and Rick's were a little bit at odds as far as what I wanted to do and, and where I knew Cheap Trick was going. Yeah. So I, I turned them down. But So George mentioned the band that he was in called the Finchley Boys, an infamous band out of Champaign, Illinois. Mike Myers shared with me a memory of seeing the Finchley Boys with Rick Nielsen. First time I ever took after was with Rick Nielsen. We took it together. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I think we were on the way back from picking up trumpets or something. We stopped in Chicago at the Canadian Playground. Saw the Finchley Boys. Uh, that was a crazy band. Anyway, we took acid. And that, at that time, you, you could just sit on the floor. I mean, I mean, we saw, gee, I don't know, Jeff Beck group. Uh, Led Zeppelin stuff, you just, the who, you just sit on the floor right in front of them. It's a club. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Toward the end of chapter 10, we hear from a fan of Cheap Trick from back then, from the mid-70s, a guy named Chris Crow. That's the perspective I've been looking for with other people I've been talking to. I asked them, you know, weren't they, didn't they seem like an odd band? Weren't they weird at the time? And most people are just saying, no, I didn't really think that, but they had to be. No, they were weird. Yeah. They were fucking weird. It was, you know, dark, underground, pained stuff, a lot of it. Uh, you know, the, you know the popular stuff. You know, was salted through it and came. But 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 I think what made them stand out is that they were, <laughs> you know, they were they were not being commercial. They were being you know the stuff they were writing and all of that. I mean, Jesus Christ, the Ballad of Richard Speck, as it was once called. Yeah. <laughs> cleaned up for legal reasons. That that was that tone. The tenor of that song was. You know, very idiosyncratically cheap trick and uh, and unique. You didn't hear stuff like that in the commercial clubs where people are going to get drunk. This was special. Yeah, I think that because they were in the Midwest, I they don't get the the kind of historical significance of the stuff that was happening, like you were talking about in Detroit, or you know, even it's not what you're describing with the. And they talk about the transvestites and cross dresses, and it almost sounds like a Maxis Kansas City type thing that they had oh, going it, on it, right here. It, yeah, it, it, it was, and it was impossible. To, you know, I, I, you know, I've been to the New York clubs and all of that. They, we we didn't really have those, and yet Cheap Trick sort of created that scene out of nothing. In other words, there wasn't there wasn't a Maxis, there wasn't a CBGB, right, or a Mud Club. Uh, they didn't exist, but those things started to grow at Cheap Trick shows. At the very end of Chapter 10, there's one of my favorite scenes that plays out in the book, and Chris Crow, who we just heard from, was there. And he told me about this incident. It took place at Sammy G's Circus, a club in Kenosha, Wisconsin, owned by Sammy Jeromo, who I also talked to. So we will hear Chris Crow recount this incident, 
Then we will hear Sammy G's perspective on the incident, and we will also hear from Bunny Carlos, who at that meeting I had with him and Ken, Bunny also brought up this incident, which took place at Sammy G's Circus in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in probably 1975. Sammy G had his ear bitten off one night and went out the door firing a forty-five at the perpetrator. Didn't hit him, thank God. Was that a cheap trick show? Yeah. <laughs> Sammy G, the owner of the club, had his ear bitten off. And... Yeah. Yeah, he got a big chunk of ear removed by teeth and got pissed off. You know, these were pretty... And he chased the guy with a gun? Yeah, with a forty-five shooting it. <laughs> wow. Which is loud. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, but I bit somebody's ear off at that. Uh... You uh, that, you they, did the they, biting. <laughs> I, I did the biting. What was that? Well, they had, they came charged the place a bunch of guys, so I took the biggest guy and I got him. I cornered him. He had a, like there was a little corner, but to come into the bar, there was one door swung out, and the other one you couldn't get out once you got him into this little corner. So I got him down there, the biggest guy, and I got him on the ground, and I bit his ear off. And in front of all his buddies, I drug him out. I spit his ear. In front of them, and I said, "Does anybody else want the action?" <laughs> so they all they all went running. Then I ran up and got my gun. And I started firing it up in the air. And this was so at a cheap trick a show. Story, the, yeah. And that was at a cheap trick show. I believe it could have been. You know, yeah. it was it was at some show back in there. It was a little hazy. I talked to. How, how did you happen to hear that? How I talked. Well, Bunny remembered something about. It. Yeah, one night. You were getting fights, so you threw a guy out. A guy bit some him or someone in the ear. Or he bit someone in the ear. Someone whipped a gun out and shot the tree outside the entry, and we were upstairs. It was right after the show ended, and we, like, hit the floor. Oh, it was after the show ended. I believe part of it was. It might have started during the last set. Got a little wild up there. But I talked to Chris Crow was the guy who designed their logo, actually, the with, you know, the type typewritten logo. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. He, was, he was there, and he told me, I think he said they tried to take the till from the cash register. And you were fighting with them over the till. I think that's how he described no, it. No, they, they were after me. They came in, uh, you know, they didn't get as far as the till. They just barely got in the door. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. They probably would think it was still. They were definitely after me. Okay. Because was, there was a jealousy issue in town. You know, all the girls coming in there. Oh, it was over, it was over the pies? The over, it, was, it was over the pies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the big sign out back, high pie. Welcoming the pies. Lit up. It was a beer sign saying high pie. <laughs> We've arrived at chapter 11, which is named for a line from the lyrics of I Want You to Want Me. We had the cheap trick, the six logo. We got to get shirts made. So in 75, we decided let's get it white on a black t shirt. We couldn't find black t-shirts. I remember we found one supplier. The like t-shirtery in, in Atlanta, we finally got it. Found black t-shirts, so we had a batch made. We gave them the Lou Reed's crew. That was the first night they were ready. We gave them all the Lou Reed's roadies. Fleetwood Mac. And stuff. One showed up in Melody Maker on Nick, with Nick Ralph's wearing it that year in fall of 75. We got a Melody, it's like, one's in England. Uh, that, that got the name out before the music got out. Actually, the t-shirts were out first. Also, we had these stickers made up that 
all over the Midwest and all the toll booths. We had we had a batch made where if they sat for like three hours, they would take paint off. Get them off. So we would go through, <laughs> and we got calls from the state patrol. We would go through toll booths, and Rick would go to put the money, and he would do this. Slap one on while dropping the money in because they had people looking for us. <laughs> yeah. And so every so people, I saw those people came up to us all we saw your name on the tollway. We saw your name on the tollway. And the last batch we had, we put on Bebop Deluxe's car. So of course, those shirts and those stickers were emblazoned with the amazing cheap trick logo. And at the beginning of chapter eleven, I tell the story of the creation of that logo. And it was created by fan Chris Crow, who we just heard from previously. There's so many things that make them the coolest rock band of all time, in my opinion. But another thing is they have a great name and they have a great logo. Um, their logo <laughs> is so great. And of course, uh, you're the person that created it. What do you remember about creating it or what motivated you? Well, you know, that was my response, graphic response to what I saw. And then attendant to that is also it was sort of a manifestation of my admiration for what they were trying to do in that kindred spirit shit. That is that they were alone too, therefore they are friends of mine. We are facing you know some of the same challenges, and uh, you know and so it was it was a you know a, a thing done you know to kind of reflect all that. Again, with none of this, we're kids at the time, or young, and none of this was and naive, and none of this was studied by you know in terms of their logo, in terms of you know my my feeling for them, it was not studied. I just thought this is you know on a gut level, this is great. These guys are like I am or want to be or whatever. We're all striving at the time. You know, I'd like to help them. You know, in this tiny way which is to come up with this, this graphic thing. So I did it. Do you remember the genesis of the idea or the inspiration behind it? Or uh, You know, it's so hard to talk about graphic art. <laughs> you know, it's a graphic thing that just felt right and looked right and all of that. I did work on it. it it's interesting, that logo. I've seen it traveling around the world. You can be in Tokyo, of course. And, you, and I suppose it, it continues to this day, but you know, just a few years ago, you'd see that fucking thing everywhere. You'd see it in Berlin on a T-shirt. You'd see it in, in Tokyo on, you know, on on, uh, on a girl's purse, etc. It was crazy. I went, Jesus Christ, I inadvertently, you know, designed a logo that's, that, that gets as much exposure as not quite Ford. And uh, <laughs> It's a great logo. You know, and it, it's a good logo. Did you have any other ideas or... Or other, you know, additional versions of no. a logo? No, it no, no, be, you know, because it was done on this, you know, it wasn't done as a commercial, ed, ed, you know, event in my life. Yeah, it was. It was purity, and, and either they agreed or they didn't agree, and 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 it wasn't, you know, I, you know, if I were doing it in a professional setting, you would, you know, you would have alternatives and all of that. This wasn't done commercially. It was done from the from the heart and. And I said, "This is it. This is this is this is the best I can do." Now, to get to that, do you fuck around a lot? Sure, you do. The way I did it, I mean, the physical, <laughs> you know, stupid <laughs> process was that I set the type, hand set, then 
ran it through an ancient thermofax machine, which was a heat <laughs> process that grabbed an image and, and, and regurgitated it <laughs> by by heating a <laughs> some some fucked up film that they they used in these machines, and if you overheated it, it would bleed, and and so that's the way it was done. That is, it is all about massively stupid reproduction in, in the kind of Warhol used to fuck around with this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it was not studied. I didn't think of it that way. I, I didn't do it intellectually. You know, as I said, it was done gut. You know, here it is. That's what I think. I mean, this was organic. Man, talk about non-digital. This was all fucking bleeding heat <laughs> stuff and, you know, and very organic relative to today. You know, and that's why it has some kind of feel, I suppose. It, it, you know, I mean, man, it's overheating the machine and making it do what it did, and then cleaning it up and photostatting that and finally getting the original, God knows where that is, the original, original uh, graphic. I'll tell you what it looked like. It was on a, it was on a piece of illustration board about, um, you know, a foot, less than a foot big, you know. I, you know, maybe it was eight inches by eight inches or something. And it, by now it's probably peeling and brown, but that's how it was delivered. Camera ready. I mean, it was it was done, but it was not typewriter stuff. It was it was handset type by a company now gone because they don't do it this way anymore. Called Letraset. Uh, oh, so it was not a you didn't furnished. use a typewriter. No, it was not a typewriter. Oh, no, it wow. was it was a typewriter font from them, but then massively fucked with. So moving on, as we go through the book, chapter 12 is named for a lyric from the Cheap Trick song, Downed. And that chapter covers the summer of 1975, the beginning of Hamer Guitars, and the story behind the song, Oh Candy. Chapter 13 is named for a lyric from the Cheap Trick song, Take Me, I'm Yours. Got a new approach. And this is the chapter when the band goes to Los Angeles to perform at the Starwood. They meet Kim Fowley, and they have a flirtation with signing with Capitol Records. Chapter 14 is named for a lyric from the song Taxman, Mr. Thief. And this is the chapter when they meet producer Jack Douglas. Chapter 15 is named for a lyric from the Terry Reed song that Cheap Trick covers on their first album, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace. In chapter 15, there's a lot more record label interest. And there's also an incident with Bunny Carlos. He has an accident that proves to be a minor setback, but the band overcomes that. It's also around this time that Rick Nielsen's look finally comes together completely. And... I had an interesting conversation with Scott Kruger, who was in a band called In a Hot Coma that opened for Cheap Trick early on. And Scott talks about the development of Rick Nielsen's onstage image. I can remember seeing him before Rick had his look down. Right. You know, because I, yeah. I remember seeing him the Stone told he was dressed like a gondola guy. Does that ring a bell with you? Did you ever hear that? No. What is that? Like the kind of like the... What? The gondola hat, like a guy that would in Venice, okay, would 
be in a gondola boat, and he had like that hat on, like a sailor hat, and kind of a striped shirt and stuff, and these white pants on. I don't think that I don't think that look lasted too long. <laughs> but I remember at the Stone Toad they played, and they let Jerry Presley Haskell um, sing with them, and so Jerry's up there singing with them, and they deliberately kind of like slowed down the song and like sped it up and slowed it down and sped it up, so he was very confused the whole time he was up there. <laughs> but that's, that's all I remember. And I can remember asking Tom Peterson, hey, can I play bass with you guys? And he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> but they did like, they did like Jerry, Jerry Singleton that one time. They kind of screwed him up. They kind of fucking with him a little bit. I also had an interesting exchange with Joe Sundberg about the development of Rick Nielsen's onstage persona. When we were younger in the bands, he would, Rick would, that character that later became the cheap trick character would only come out once a night and it would be on My Generation, which was a Who song. And he would smash a guitar and kick over the drums and do all kinds of crazy shit, you know, knock over his amps and like the Who did, because he'd seen them, you know, and a lot of people loved that, you know, they, he'd become this, character that he later became in Cheap Trick and you know he even built onto that character with the clothes and all that stuff he became this cartoon character you know which is funny because you know that that was always in him but it only came out once a night you know when we played you know, our other bands and he'd play that uh, he'd play that Who song and this this character, he jump around and all the stuff he does today, you know. And let's hear one more amazing memory that Scott Kruger shared with me. And I remember being with, there was a, a record store here called Dirty Jacks. And I can remember me and Jerry, and I'm talking about Presley Haskell, but he's Jerry to me, and Rick Nielsen. And I remember Rick Nielsen in the cutup and picking up that first Big Star album and then asking us, oh, is this any good? And we say, yeah, yeah, you gotta buy it. It's fantastic. Really? But um, where was that? Yeah. And where or when? Both, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay. That would have been a place called Dirty Jack's Record Rack okay. in Milwaukee. That would have been around. Oh God, I don't know, seventy-five maybe. That's great. So you you specifically remember that Rick pulling that record out and. Saying, is this any yeah, good? Yeah, and asking Jerry, not me. He asked yeah. Jerry, goes, well, yeah. is, this, is this any good? And then Jerry said, this, you know, it's fantastic. Chapter 16 is named for a lyric from an early Cheap Trick song that has never been released called Son of a Gun. Chapter 16 covers the band signing with a management agency and finally signing their record deal. Chapter 17 is named for a lyric from the song Southern Girls. And in chapter 17, the band travels to New York City to record their first album at the record plant with Jack Douglas. And I spoke with Orville Davis, who was a member of the band Rex, who were recording at the record plant at the same time as Cheap Trick. And this is what Orville had to say about Cheap Trick's music. stuff they were recording was just tight as a cat's ass, and the sound was Tremendous. Chapter 18 is named for a lyric from the song High Roller. 
chapter 18, they've now recorded the album. They go back to play in the clubs and they get an opportunity to open two shows for Queen in Milwaukee and Madison. Chapter 19 is named for a lyric from the Cheap Trick song, Violins. No sympathy, fire, sympathy. And Chapter 19 is about the first album. Chapter 20 is named for a lyric from an early Cheap Trick song that has not been officially released. It's called Blow Me Away, also referred to as Flame Burning In My Heart. And Chapter 20, I cover all of the marketing. Epic Records actually had a big marketing push for the band and they got a ton of press. So Chapter 20 is a very entertaining chapter about all of the press that the band received. Chapter 21 is named for a lyric from the song, Oh Caroline. And Chapter 21 essentially sees the band leaving the clubs. They become a support act for a lot of more established bands. This is in part due to having signed with a large talent management booking agency, ICM. And by the end of Chapter 21, the band is back out in Los Angeles to record their second album with producer Tom Werman. The favorite band I, I ever produced. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, far, far and away. Just a great, productive, funny, uh, smart group. Every one of them. Chapter 22 is named for a lyric from one of the very first songs that Rick Nielsen wrote for this band, Cheap Trick, called Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School. And Chapter 22 covers the band going out on tour with Kiss. This is the summer of 1977. And also the discovery of a band out in Tucson called Cheap Tricks. T-R-I-X, and I actually spoke with Tony Kishman, who was a member of that band. Well, uh, back in the, uh, the early 70s, we, we put together a group called Cheap Tricks, and that was T-R-I-X. And uh, we, were, um, we were playing uh, clubs all around the uh, Tucson area. We would play at, like, Smiley's again and some of the other clubs in town. And then um, we finally got a really good agent. We started booking the show, uh, our band in uh, Southern California. So we were doing like Smoky Stovers and all these really cool rock clubs and everything. And we got to be a pretty popular uh, local band. Cheap Tricks was a, a fun group. We, we would do a lot of different crazy stuff on stage and we would play songs by the tubes and uh, you know, different uh, cool bands at the time, you know. And so one one day we were, uh, we were just doing our gig and we got a letter from the uh, group Cheap Trick. And it was, uh, you know, some, some law firm, right? <laughs> and uh, they said, yeah, they said, uh, we understand that you guys are performing as, you know, Cheap Tricks. And we just signed a record deal with Epic Records, and we we would like you to stop uh, cease and desist using the name Cheap Tricks. It's too similar to our name, and uh, please stop using it. <laughs> so we we couldn't believe that we were getting a letter from Cheap Trick. We were so young and silly, as they young and stupid as they say, 
and um, we didn't realize anything. We just said, oh my gosh, we're getting a letter from Chief Trick, wow. And towards the end of the chapter, we get into their second album, In Color. Chapter 23, the final chapter before the epilogue, is named for a lyric from Dream Police. And chapter 23, we get to the recording of the band's third album, Heaven Tonight, and they head over to Europe on tour with Kansas. And right after that tour, short tour of Europe, the band is going to head over to Japan. But a big part of chapter 23 is the description of the creation of the original, very first 12-string bass guitar, which was an idea that Tom Peterson had that was made a reality by Paul Hamer's partner at Hamer Guitars, Joel Danzig. At the time, there was, there was just nothing like it. It was just like the, the stage show was spectacular. The songs were different and sounded great. They sounded different. And uh, it was just the kind of thing that people were just were wowed. It, it almost seemed like they could come into a club and there would be, you know, a, a decent turnout. But by the next time they played that club, it would be standing room only. You know, it was just like people would just be packed in there because the, because the buzz was so big. That's what Joel had to say about the band. Let's hear Joel talking about creating the 12-string bass. What I recall is that we had doubts that the neck could take the tension of all those strings. And uh, so we decided to make a 10-string bass first. And, uh, and when that worked, then we realized, okay, well, this is really manageable. Let's put 12-strings on it and see what happens. And, and it worked. So, you know, but the truth of the matter is that Tom wanted the 12-string from the beginning. He had been playing an 8-string bass, a Hagstrom 8-string bass, which is a Scandinavian company that made 8-string made basses. They weren't that uncommon, but, uh, you know, I am sure he was, he's, you know, there's an instrument called the tipple, T-I-P-L-E, that's, uh, has three string, groups of three strings, just like the 12-string bass. So, you know, I, I'm sure that, uh, you know, at Nielsen Music, they probably had one. <laughs> so right. it was probably stu stuck in his mind. But it was his idea to make the 12-string bass. And, uh, you know, we took the baby step, the 10-string, and then we moved on to the 12-string and just never looked back. So we've arrived at the epilogue of the book, which is really another chapter. It's 11 pages long, and a lot happens, a lot of great details. But let's close out the episode here with a great story that is in the epilogue of the book. We're going to hear from Carrie Baker. Carrie was a music writer. He's quoted multiple times in the book. He wrote for a local Rockford paper called Lively Times, and there was a Chicago magazine called Triad that he wrote for. And we're going to hear Carrie tell a story here. And then we're going to hear some of the actual radio broadcast that Carrie references. I, I had an on-air audition for an interview show, a rock and roll interview show on uh, Y95. And uh, my first interview subject, Rick Nielsen. And uh, I hadn't even calculated or suspected or, or, or you know, let my mind 
entertain the possibility that Rick might be playing with me or, or making this difficult for me. But he, <laughs> he certainly did. He, uh, I mean, he, did, he didn't make it easy for me. He, uh, and I, I was just, you know, a, a basically innately shy Midwest college student. Uh, you know, I had a real good opportunity here. Uh, I, I thought I might even have a future in radio. Uh, but he, uh, you know, every question, he just sort of, uh, he was real cynical and uh, uh, gave, gave kind of cynical answers, and that was that. I didn't hate him for it, and, you know, uh, we went on being friends, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what got into him that day or why he decided to do that, but needless to say, I didn't get the job, and, uh, um, you know, Armand did me a favor and didn't even call me. He just, that, that was that. It made its own uh, on-air statement. So I didn't get that job, but that, that's cool. Uh, you know, I, I, I hunkered down in, in print journalism, and that's probably where I needed to be until I started my career at Record Company. Our interview that you've all been waiting for and have been calling all day about, uh, we have uh, three of the four members of Cheap Trick in the studio with us, and uh, Carrie Baker is going to be uh, conducting the interview. So at this time, I'll turn it over to you, Carrie, and uh, take it away. Rick Nielsen, Robin Zander, Tom Peterson, and Bunny Carlos collectively known as Cheap Trick, are back in the USA, following tours of Europe and Japan. The continent of Europe has long been a market for the band. Hello Kitties was a hit single, and their first two LPs sold pretty well. But more recently, J Japanese fans welcomed the band as if they were aristocracy. They landed in Tokyo on April 22nd to the flash of press photographers. They were whisked away from the cheering crowds through the back exits, and when they arrived in their hotel, the scene was more fans and more cameras still. While in Japan, Cheap Trick was interviewed by Japan's two leading music magazines, Music Life and... Unganku Senka. Thank you, Rick. Unganku Senka, Carrie. Come on, get with it. You're welcome. Both of which planned to feature the band on the covers of their May editions. Guitarist Rick Nielsen received an, aw an award from Player Magazine, a custom-built, one-of-a-kind special Rick Nielsen Ibanez guitar. Music Life magazine shows Cheap Trick as the brightest hope of the year, topping the category with almost 40,000 votes. Their Japanese single, Clock Strikes 10 from the In Color album, is number four in Tokyo with sales of In Color exceeding 47,000 copies. Their third album, Heaven Tonight, was released in Japan before anywhere else in the world. Americans are still waiting. In one Japanese city, 600 screaming fans mobbed the airport as the band landed, having to be physically restrained by police. The hysteria level at the concert was so high that the local promoter warned them that if Rick threw any of his guitar picks into the audience, the promoter would shut down the show in fear of a riot. Nat naturally, the band refused to oblige. Clock Strike 10 has... <laughs> Quit throwing the picks. Clock Strike 10 has been the number one single in the area for six consecutive weeks. The new single, the title, title track from Heaven Tonight, sold more than 4,000 copies in one day. It's quite a success story. How do you account for your success across the Pacific? Gee, Kerry, you do that so smooth. <laughs> that was terrible. You're supposed to be a writer. You should be able to read stuff. That was written by uh, Susan Blonde in uh, New York, and she sent that to you, Carrie, and I thought you could pronounce those big words. Well, what was your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> How do you account for your success in Japan? Well, uh, they like our music, just like they do in Rockford, and just like they do in Madison. And it was just, it was our first tour there, and uh, it was a lot of fun. They have an active promoting staff? Hey, look, who's going to get technical, you know? <laughs> Who knows about that? Nah, they like the way Bunny plays the drums and Robin sings and the way I play guitar and Bunny and Tom plays the bass. That's it. Who knows about all that other stuff? They like our records. I already said that. 
What's Japanese radio like? Is anything like we have in the States? Uh, yeah, except you can't understand it unless you know Japanese. It's simple as that. Otherwise, the music's the same. Did your Japanese fans give you any interesting trinkets or tokens of their appreciation? No. Well, who, uh, who produced this album? Well, you already know that. What are you asking me for? After working with uh, two different producers, how do you find that their techniques differed? Uh, what, what did you think Jack Douglas uh, offered you on album number one as opposed to Worman on two and three? Well, he offered us more drugs in the station in the studio, but of course, uh, I don't take any. So, just kidding, Carrie. Gee, don't get, don't look so long in the face. Have you thought about album number four? Of course, and five, and six, and seven. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, we just uh, when we were in Japan, we recorded three nights there. We recorded two nights in Tokyo, one night in Osaka. So there'll be a live album in Japan coming out there, I believe, on August 21st. Released just in Japan. I believe just released in Japan. Maybe it'll become an imported uh, by an import or radio station promotion copy, some stuff like that. Like the uh, the Nils Lofgren authorized A&M promo bootleg. Well, I don't know about that, Gary. You're, just like that. You're, you're more into that kind of stuff than me. Whoa. I don't know. Hey, this has been real neat being here at the YFE today, and thanks a lot for having us out here. And well, thanks for coming. going to leave you with a few more memories from Bunny Carlos. I, this band called the Daiquiris in Rockford in the 60s when I was in high school. They, they had a couple guys that stood on stage and played and they'd, they'd light up a cigarette and a song and be playing and I always thought, I smoke, I'd like to do that too someday, you know. How come I gotta quit smoking when I'm on stage? So I just started doing it. Rick and Tom in 71 in Germany saw Rod Stewart in the faces. They had a Wim PA that was just like this huge wall on a field and they were probably drinking and tripping or something and they thought it was the greatest thing they ever heard. So we had to buy a Wim PA. Oh. So we got this PA shipped in from England after we went to the bank and can we get a loan? Set it up at the at Waverly? Yeah. And we got one side working. 
we took it to Michigan, I remember, for the brewery or whatever that place was called in Lansing. East Lansing. We blew it up. We yeah. blew it up in one night. And, <laughs> and we paid, took a year, we paid the thing off and it all I ended got up the letters from Watkins. They couldn't yeah. figure out why we didn't like it. It was a piece of junk. They said they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't the pay the legal fees. They said Richard Speck victims would sue if we call it the Valerie Richard yeah. Speck. They didn't want the album to get injuncted, and they didn't want legal fees, and they said if we call it Richard Speck, they won't back us on it. So it really wasn't much of a question. The title kind of had to go. But that was all the way, like, when the album was already recorded and about to be pressed and everything? Or? I don't know, it, had yeah. been a, it had been the Valor of Richard Speck, you know, for over a year, and then, uh, so, and then it wasn't, uh, not the end of the world, you know? Yeah. Hey, so if you've made it this far, then I'm going to give you one last treat. Spoiler alert, the very last line of the book 
at least the last line of the last chapter before the epilogue, comes from the next quote that we're going to hear from George Faber. So George is the guy that Rick Nielsen asked to join Cheap Trick two different times. And George Faber, who was from a band called the Finchley Boys, he turned Rick down both times. And so I used part of this quote as the very last line of the book. Like I said, the end of the book, and then there's an epilogue. Anyways, thanks for listening, and please buy the book. Rick called me up uh, from Budokan, uh, you know, from Japan, and said, we're in Japan, eat your heart out. (laughs) (laughs) Bill, take your feet off the table and help me straighten up. Nancy will be home any minute, and she's bringing some friends with her. For her friends, I don't have to clean up. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. These are the guys I told you about. Mom, Dad, oh. meet Cheap Trick. Cheap Hello. Trick. Yeah, Robin is the lead singer, isn't he? Adorable. Yeah, adorable. And Tom Peterson plays the bass guitar and creates auras. And Rick was a cartoon character before he joined the group. Oh. And this is Venezuela. He was named after a country in South America, I think. Venezuela. They played in bars and bowling alleys and even warehouses, and now they've got an album out. Why don't you play one of the songs from your album for my parents, guys? Send her to college, you said. She'll meet some nice boys, you said. Cheap trick. Only rock and roll could bring them together. Only Epic Records could record their first album. Cheap trick. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 